in Hebrews 13, we've studied three verses which give the title leader or ruler to certain men in the church. Their duties and the appropriate congregational responses to them have been the content of my last two sermons. This from verses 7, 17, and 24. Now I could move forward in the chapter. Certainly one of the most beautiful verses in all of Hebrews is there in verse 8. Uh, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we'll save that, Lord willing, for next week. It seems wiser to me to take a short one-sermon detour in order to show you some other names or titles of church leaders. And I trust this will accomplish several things. First, it will show that God has a specific job description for these leaders. If they want to be faithful to God, they will learn those roles and seek to fulfill them. This will show men who desire this office what, in a broad fashion, it entails. For men already in church leadership, they should recognize that the Bible and these names and the description of their work and that alone defines their work. And for you as a congregation, this job description, if you will, will help you to select, pray for, and even evaluate your leaders. So that's the first thing I hope to accomplish. Secondly, that this fairly lengthy list of terms will show the error of those who claim that the offices, titles, and work of the church leader is really very nebulous. And because God doesn't really fill it out, we're allowed to fill out the job description. Many men claim that the scriptures are insufficient for the man of God to know what the God of the man wants them to do. But a study of these terms destroys that shallow viewpoint. Thirdly, I hope this helps all of us to maintain a balanced view of the work of church leaders. It's common for people to look only to that leader being a public preacher, or only a counselor, or I'm looking for a visionary, or, well, the ungodly deacons are looking for a doormat, or whatever. It is easy to become imbalanced and to think that a leader should basically rule or basically serve or hone in on and overdo one valid function. But a pastor is to strive to perform all the breadth of the work bound up in all of these terms. So let's quickly look at some of these names or titles and I will start with the most common and the most important. And then, since we won't finish, I will just list some others uh, toward the end of the sermon. I challenged uh, you, kind of in a friendly way, to see how many you could come up with. I hope you came up with at least a dozen. Because there are at least that many that describe uh, the office and the work uh, of that office. Well, here's the first one. It's the word elder. Elder. 
elder. This is by far the most common term for church leaders in the New Testament. It's used dozens of times. For example, Acts 14.23 relates how Paul and Barnabas in establishing churches did the following. They appointed elders in every church. Or in Acts 20, Paul in Miletus sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, elder is simply the translation for the Greek word presbyteros, or presbyter, we might say. It means an older man, someone advanced in age. Now, in Jesus' day, and we find this term all through the Gospels, right? An elder was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jews' administrative and judicial council. They ruled, at least theoretically, in every town. In the New Testament church, elders are spiritually mature men, usually, but not always, senior in age, who lead a specific congregation. And when there is more than one elder in a church, which again is the biblical pattern, they form what we call a presbytery or a board of elders. And together, they lead the church. Now, several things are important to note from this most frequently used term. First, the word itself points toward older men being in this office. The simple fact is, elder doesn't mean younger. Old doesn't mean new. It's a term for an older man who is spiritually stable. He must be proven in life, dignified and self-controlled. In Titus 2, older men are to be sober-minded and sound in the faith, and in love, and in steadfastness. According to 1 Timothy 3.6, an elder is not to be a new convert, no matter how famous or gifted they are. In our country, there is sometimes an unhealthy approach to the office as if it were just another career path for a teenage boy to pursue. This often results in wasted years by the man with accompanying economic and spiritual harm to his family and church. Eldership, though, is something for younger men to aspire to, to work toward, and sometimes be found fully qualified for. Secondly, under elder, uh, as a use for elder, I hope this encourages you men who perhaps are no longer in your 20s, who are pursuing the office. Your steadiness in church attendance, your continual prayers, your consistent family and work obligations, they're not preventing you from entering the ministry. No, they are the very things that qualify you Amen. for the ministry. Amen. Life is the proving ground for eldership. Your primary goal is not to get through schooling, although that's a wonderful thing. 
It is to become a spiritually mature man. To become an elder. Because then you have the proven graces and gifts to lead God's precious people. So an elder must be wise, well-versed in his Bible, knowing how to apply it to all sorts of life situations inside and outside of the congregation. And normally, it is years of Christian experience that is how God develops an elder so that he can lead the church in a stable and scriptural kind of wisdom. So that's the first word, elder, and just a few of the applications that might be made from it. Our second word is overseer. Overseer. Now this is the English translation for the Greek word episcope, from which we get the word episcopal. It's sometimes translated bishop, uh, but that term usually carries uh, unbiblical baggage from church history and and it's best not to use it. The word itself means to inspect or to supervise. When Paul described the qualifications for a church leader in 1 Timothy 3, we normally think, oh, an elder or a pastor. Well, actually the word there that he's giving qualifications for is overseer. This is the word he used. He put it this way. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, to qualify, the man needed to have managed his own household well. This proved he could manage or supervise the church of God. So pastors are not just men who pray and men who preach. They are also watchers, inspectors, and supervisors of the church. Now, some of this gets delegated at times to the deacons and to the congregation. This is certainly a shared work among us. But the buck for these things stops with the overseer. So a church leader will sometimes ask probing questions about your spiritual life. Yes, he will. Remember, he keeps watch over your soul. God requires that of him. He doesn't do this because you like it or he likes it or it makes you comfortable because it doesn't or him or anything like that. The overseer supervisors, supervises the worship and teaching and general life of the church. Now, he must not be a meddling, nosy, busybody. But he must know his people, their strengths, their weaknesses, he must be alert to who is teaching in the church and what their doctrine is. And he must direct the church's life in a way that glorifies God and strengthens believers. Now in 1 Peter 2.25, which we've already read earlier during the time of confession of sin, Jesus is called the overseer of our souls. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate soul watcher and supervisor. And this reminds us that really every leadership title in the church, every function that men follow the lead of Jesus Christ. If we don't know how to implement the leadership title or the eldership title 
or the overseer title. What we do is we look to Jesus because he's the original and the ultimate of all of these. The third title is pastor. Pastor. Now in our culture, this is perhaps the most common title for the church leader or ruler or overseer or elder. But as a noun describing that office, it's actually only found one time in the entire New Testament. That's in Ephesians 4.11, where Paul uses the compound word pastor-teacher, or in some of your translations, it is shepherd-teacher, because a pastor is a shepherd. One of the gifts Christ purchased for the church, Paul says in Ephesians 4, were shepherds to care for his flock, the church. Now, even though the noun, the title, is used but once, the verb form is found otherwise. For example, 1 Peter 5, 2. So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, there he is, right? He, there's the original. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, from that very important passage about pastor's titles and work, notice these several things. First, an elder is a shepherd, is an overseer. He exhorts the elders to shepherd and exercise oversight. Those are the, all those words, those same three words, elder, pastor, overseer. There they are. And they do this by actively overseeing those in their charge. They have a responsibility to certain specific believers. I have a responsibility as a pastor to some of you that's different than the responsibility I have to others of you. Some of you are sheep in another fold. And while I love you and care for you, I don't have to answer to God for you. Your, your elders have to do that. Men shepherd the flock largely by their teaching. This is how they lead the sheep into green pastures and refreshing waters. By this, they also guard the sheep from wolves, what Jude calls shepherds who feed themselves. They watch against the sheep wandering over the cliff or away from the herd or fold. They bring them back when they stray, and when hurt, they bind up their wounds. They even lay down their lives for the sheep. Why did they do this? How do they know to do this? Well, that's answered by our third use from this point, and that is that actually all merely human shepherds are actually under-shepherds. You see, there is a chief shepherd 
to whom they give an account and whose pattern they follow. That is Jesus, of course. He is called in the New Testament the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, and the Chief Shepherd. He is this because he laid down his life for his beloved sheep. He knows every one of the sheep for whom he shed his blood. And he never deserts them. And he always guards them to safety, even to their final rest. In fact, he's not done shepherding. According to Revelation chapter 7, the lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be his people's shepherd. And he will guide them, it says, to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Pastors, under shepherds, should love the flock enough to lead them to these kind of quiet, restful places and even wipe their tears if they need to. We don't have much time to look at the next passage in detail that talks about elders, overseers, and shepherds. But many of the same truths are found in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. And I would really urge you to later today study that passage. In these verses, again, the elders are called overseers, and it is said that they care for the flock, the church of God. So there are those three main titles again. Elders equals pastors equals overseers. It's one office. It's one calling. It's one work. Paul exemplified this in his teaching because he gave the whole counsel of God to them. He was responsible for these believers, but he could say, I have so taught you the truth of God that I am innocent of your blood should you leave the truth. Elders were to pay close attention both to themselves and the flock. They are to fight off wolves, that is, false teachers. So they must be ready to admonish everyone, even with tears. So that's a ruler, that's a leader, that's an elder, that's an overseer, that's a pastor. Now next, or fourth in our list, is an important and often overlooked title for pastors. And that is the word steward, steward. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Paul says of himself and of Apollos, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Then he goes on to say, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Not only apostles like Paul were stewards, Apollos was as well. And ordinary pastors are also. Titus 1.7 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Elders, overseers, pastors are stewards. Now what's a steward? Here's a little sentence I'd love for you to memorize. A steward is a guardian and dispenser of another's goods. 
A steward is a guardian and dispenser of another's goods. In Jesus' day, well-to-do people had a steward who managed their household affairs, their property, their accounts, even their slaves. Stewards cared for the owner's possessions and gave them out, not according to their will, but according to the owner's will. They supervised his concerns by doing such things as feeding the household and paying the accounts. God's stewards in the church also guard and dispense the goods of another. In scripture, these goods are called the mysteries of God. We just quoted that from 1 Corinthians 4. And the good deposit. This is the truth of the gospel, the whole counsel of God, and the doctrinal content of the entire Bible. So when Paul refers to the mysteries of God, he's not talking about some special hidden apostolic insight. Mysteries in the New Testament are God's open secrets. God's open secrets. God's now opened mysteries. Things that were present in the Old Testament, but hidden, shadowy, dark. Are now made plain. Christ has come and he's brought truth and light so that the mysteries of God have been opened. And now they are to be proclaimed. And all of that is done by a steward. In other words, stewards first guard the truth. Men who want to be pastors must thoroughly learn the scriptures and be able to tell when some other teaching is bringing harm to the one truth of the Bible. So stewards are, remember, from our 1 Corinthians 4.2, they are first and foremost to be faithful. So they must resist the temptation to corrupt the truth or tamper with it in any way. Stewards are preachers who rightly divide the word of truth. And then after they know it accurately, they give it out accurately. Stewards dispense these goods from God, <laughs> these mysteries, and they do it in two ways. They speak them and they enact them. They speak them and they enact them. Or put another way, they preach and they give out the sacraments. Both works dispense the gospel. So stewards preach in plain words to bless the people of God with the truth of God. And then they deliver the Christ-appointed ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so they give out, they dispense the gospel in a visible form. Again, much could be said to apply this to us, but let me just whet your appetite by making several short uses. First, fidelity to God is paramount in elders or stewards. Fidelity, constancy, faithfulness. They must be utterly conscientious and faithful in all they do, but especially in teaching the Word of God. Congregation, you should detest 
originality of doctrine in your preachers. You should absolutely hate that. Bring your old tomatoes, bring your dead cats, and make use of them if someone from behind this desk tries to tell you something from God that's not in the Word of God. Any man who would corrupt it deserves to be thrown out of this spot. A steward is not called upon to be an inventive philosopher, but a guardian of God's gospel and to accurately convey God's mind to you. He must be an excellent student and teach all and only what the scriptures say. Paul strongly charged Timothy, for example, to what? Guard the deposit. You see, Timothy's a steward. God's given him something. And he must guard the gospel with everything he is and has. The Bible is that good deposit. So the steward must know his people and he must know what they need so that he feeds them to their spiritual health. Secondly, regarding stewards, stewards are not masters. Pastors are never the ultimate master of a church. There's one master, there's one God, right? There's one elder, there's one overseer, there's one of each of these things, one shepherd. But stewards do have authority from the master of the house to give out his goods to the master's children. Stewards, therefore, are like overseers and leaders in charge of God's household. Thirdly, God's stewards are those who have the authority to give God's servants their spiritual food. So says Pastor Waldron. An excellent summary statement. God's stewards are those who have the authority to give God's servants their spiritual food. So we must lead in God's worship especially in the public ministry of the Word of God. And because the sacraments are the visible symbols of this food, stewards should lead in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now that doesn't mean they have to always perform every aspect of these things, but they can never give up the responsibility for these things. Pastors have been assigned a stewardship. And until the Lord removes it, they must be faithful to it. This is in part why I fence the table. This is not my table. This is not your table. This is not our table. This is the Lord's table. It is owned by the Lord of the house. And he has given a steward rules for people to come and eat at his table. And the steward must be faithful to follow those rules. A fifth title is man of God. Man of God. Now this is a phrase found over 70 times in the Old Testament. It almost always refers to a prophet. Once or twice, it refers to a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. But when it does, he's one who is doing a prophetic work. 
So in one sense, we could say all of the 70 cases in the Old Testament are prophets. But it's someone who's been given the responsibility to be God's mouth, to speak for God. God's word has been placed in his mouth, and he is obligated to speak. In other words, his words are not his own. He does not speak his own ideas. He is a spokesman for the Lord. Paul twice names Timothy a man of God. Now, Timothy was not a prophet. He was a teacher of the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Timothy is told that the scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable for every situation so that the man of God, that is the one who speaks for God, would be complete and fully furnished for their work. So pastors must study the word of God. Because it is healthy food for every occasion that God's man will find himself in. Some of you might even recall that when I was ordained here a little over four years ago, Pastor Sam Waldron preached on this theme, the man of God. And at least one of you, uh, dear brother Joe Bradbury, still regularly calls me that. Um, I love that because it's a reminder of what I'm, uh, reminded of what I'm responsible to do. I'm supposed to be more about God's words than my own. I highly recommend that excellent sermon to you. It is on our website. If you go there and uh, limit it to by speaker, and you put in Sam Waldron, I think only two sermons come up. So that's, that's one of the two. A really excellent sermon. And I will refer you to that rather than expound it, since we have more titles to look at this morning. But this title is a reminder, man of God is a reminder, that my pastoral words, both public and private, need to come from the Lord. Now I'm going to move quickly through a couple of more, and then I will just list some and we'll be done. Number six, teacher. Teacher. In James 3.1, men are warned to be careful in becoming teachers in the church because they will be under stricter judgment. So there are teachers in the church. In Ephesians 4.11, you will recall the title teacher is joined to shepherd. So men are shepherds of the sheep of God, and they mainly do that through their teaching. That's how they shepherd. They are shepherd teachers or pastor teachers. In Acts 13.1, the leaders of the church in Antioch consisted of prophets and teachers. Now, to many of us, this is an obvious title for a church leader, but it's easy to make it about us. us. Oh, he's a teacher. He has a gift of teaching. <laughs> the point of being a teacher, though, is to feed God's word to his people. If it's true what Jesus said, and of course it is, that men don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, then the role of teacher is a vital concern in the church, and he ought to be teaching God's words, not his own. We have heard it taught from several, several different angles in the titles above, but the point is the same. The pastor mainly performs his duties by giving out the word of God. 
by speaking God's truth into your mind and hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit into your soul and conscience so that you're changed. So that I'm changed. That's the way sinners are saved. That's the way saints are preserved. A pastor's fundamental duty in many ways is to teach. Well, number seven, herald. Herald, H-E-R-A-L-D. Not a old-fashioned man's name, but someone with a trumpet who, or who lifts up their voice like a trumpet and proclaims something. Preachers are heralds according to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Romans 10. That means they publicly proclaim the gospel. They publish good news. Above all, this means that preachers are not debaters. They're not merely teachers, and especially that behind closed doors to a select few. It means they don't cut off the sharp edges of truth, but they declare it. Heralds aren't wafflers. They plainly proclaim the gospel to believer and unbeliever alike. They sound the trumpet of God's truth and declare, this is what the king's will is. The herald speaks very directly for God. And he expects people to listen. The lesson here is that preachers must boldly declare the salvation of God in Christ. Their speaking must include the call to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, to the king, by believing in him. Another word that describes the preacher's function with virtually the same meaning is the word ambassador. So that would be an eighth one. This was the emperor's personal representative. When the ambassador spoke, the king spoke. And men in the Christian ministry, again, must be reminded they are not merely speaking their views and their opinion. They represent the true God who accomplished salvation in Christ Jesus and calls all men to the obedience of faith. The pastorate is not a place for those too weak or too frightened to actually demand that God be heard Amen. in his word. Now, there are many other names for church leaders. Ones I haven't and really won't comment on are Builder, God's Coworker, Wow, that's an exalted title. Think about that. God's co-worker, servant, father, witness, and minister. And there may be others. But all together, they make up the job description of a church leader. And again, those of you who are aspiring to this office, pursue these things. Become these things. And congregation, you who are called upon by God to wisely choose your leaders, familiarize yourself with these terms so that you can properly judge the fitness of a man for office. Well, may God give us uh, grace now, all of us, uh, to grow more into Christ-likeness as his word is proclaimed and taught uh, through God's steward. Let's pray.